Uh, as Julius talking about, the last uh, two and a half years uh, have been quite a wild ride, um, if we can call it that. I think it's kind of bizarre and crazy as we're looking back to recognize uh, how much has happened since March 2020. Um, and I think there's been a lot of trauma. Uh, I think there's, a lot of been, uh, there's been a lot of difficulty, sufferings that we've gone through. Uh, and, and we've had to ask as a leadership, as a church, uh, have we actually taken the time to process everything? Uh, have we taken the time to, to actually lament? Do we even know how to? Uh, and this is different from just taking a vacation or doing something fun to take our mind off things or even just going through the grieving process um, because this call to lament, this Christian call to lament is, is something very different. Uh, I think specific, specifically as Christians, <clears throat> we often view lamenting as simply being depressed before God, right? which I think there's some truth to it, but I, I don't think it's complete in its understanding uh, lament is this Christian, uniquely Christian process of bringing our honest thoughts, our honest pains before God, uh, and, and, and ultimately being led to trust in Him. It is a uniquely Christian thing to lament because it expects God to work. It's very different from grieving. Uh, and so as we spend the next month exploring what it means to lament, our hope is that uh, this word challenges us uh, that, that it actually shows us how, how we may be falling short in, in, in our attempts to, to grieve because uh, our natural inclination brings us to, to numb the pain, uh, to ignore the pain, or, or try to fix it on our own. And none of those things are truly Christian lament. Those things don't work. It's like putting a dirty Band-Aid on a festering wound. It doesn't work. And you tear it off and you put on the next Band-Aid. It also doesn't work. And until that wound is actually healed, what we continue to do is to look for new band-aids that do not work. And what Christian lament does is actually brings us to the great physician who can actually heal us from the inside out and asks for help. And so today we turn to Psalm 10, uh, which is a very lamentable situation as, as Caleb read for us. Uh, and what we want to learn from this psalm is how to properly lament. And uh, for myself, to, in order to remember it, it's four steps. T-C-A-T, or it's called for myself T-CAT. Uh, don't know why, it just works. T-CAT. Turn to God, complain to God, ask of God, and then finally trust in God. T-CAT. First off, turn to God. The context is a very familiar one that we all know very well, unfortunately. There is a great injustice uh, in which the wicked are prospering in their evil schemes. Look at verse 2 to 3 with me. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. Uh, and here uh, we see that these are arrogant, prideful uh, wicked people who plot evil schemes to take advantage of the weak and the poor for their own gain. And perhaps what is worse, uh, we see in the second part of verse 3, is that the one who is greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, being God, and all his thoughts are, there is no God. Uh, and, and, and here, I guess, even worse for the, the writer, the psalmist, is that these wicked people scoff at God. They laugh at God. And when it says, 
uh, that they think in their hearts that there is no God. It's not saying that these are atheists, all right? These are not people who, who uh, do not believe that there is no God, but rather when it says that they renounce God, it means that they revile, they despise God, they hate him. And when it says they, that they believe there is no God in their hearts, it is descriptive of how they live and they act. They live and they act as if there is no God. They act as if God does not watch over all things. And to the psalmist, this is unthinkable. Verse 5, he says, His ways prosper at all times. God, your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for his foes, he puffs at them. This, this is disgusting to him. He sees that these wicked people, they prosper in their evil, in their wickedness. And how could this be? Right? This is the same feeling that we have when we see the crooks and the dishonest succeed in their wickedness. And it leads us to wonder, how could this be? How could this be? This is the situation that prompts the first two questions that we saw in verse 1, where he turns to God and he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? These are the, this is the situation that, that prompts these questions. Right? Obviously, in the face of all that is happening, the writer feels as if God is not present in the situation. Why are you so far away? Why do you hide your face? This psalmist is truly depressed. He is distressed. And therefore, he asks God, where are you? Why are you not here? And this is the first step to Christian lament. It is turning to God, the act of turning to him. It seems like such a small thing, and yet perhaps it is the biggest step in lament. Right? When you encounter the pain of living in a broken world, when you encounter suffering and, and bitterness and frustration, what is your normal response? Or rather, who do you turn to? What do you turn to? I, I naturally don't turn to God. Uh, I'll tell you, there's, my natural response is one that I don't even realize I'm doing uh, in the very beginning. But usually, uh, what that means is I turn to YouTube or TV, right? And it's so simple. You just type in Y, and Google immediately gives you YouTube, and you click enter. You're there. You start watching. And then suddenly, you find yourself following the related section. And finally, you look up. It's 3 o'clock. You're watching pimple-popping videos. And you're like, how did I get here? Or worse, my wife looks over and says, wow, you've been on the screen a lot today. And I'm like, oh, oh, I have. And that, that's actually usually a trigger for me to realize I'm numbing. There's something I'm running from. There's something I'm turning from. I'm turning to other things other than God. And the worst thing is that after binging on these things, I feel emptier than before. This problem hasn't changed at all. In fact, it's worse. Now I'm tired and unable to deal with it. But to the psalmist, he turns to God. He turns to God in his moments of, of exhaustion, of frustration and pain. And this first step is actually what sends him down the correct path. Because our fleshly tendencies are to turn everywhere else than God, either away from it or towards it. To turn away from our pain is to numb it, to ignore it, to distract ourselves. Anything that will keep me from feeling the pain, maybe focusing on things like work, on hobbies. We throw ourselves into it so we don't have to think about what hurts. And yet, we all know, what does it do? It leads to more desperation, more pain when we realize that nothing has been solved. Or we turn to ourselves. We turn towards 
these pains and we think we can solve this. I can do this. And then we throw ourselves into fixing this situation. And I mean, think about, for instance, put yourself in the shoes of the psalmist here in Psalm 10. All right. If you were in this psalmist's shoes, seeing the wicked prosper, and you decided, I'm going to solve this. I'm going to fix this wickedness, this evil. Think about what needs to happen if that were the case. Because the proper fix for the situation is that this evil needs to be rectified. It needs to be, uh, uh, someone needs to challenge it, right? The wicked person needs to face justice. And that means we need to take it into our own hands. And that means we need to somehow enact justice. And maybe there's something we need to learn from the revenge movies. What happens in those movies? We've all watched them. It doesn't work. Right? Those seeking revenge always seem to come in the last five minutes to realize they've become the monster they sought to destroy. I mean, stop me if you heard that story before. We've all heard it. They seek justice, they seek justice, they seek revenge. It's not a bad thing, and yet they lose themselves in the process. Right? We grow bitter, either because we fail in solving the issue, because we find that we are too weak, and we begin to feel helpless and feeling that there will never be true justice because we could not enact it, or maybe we succeed. And we find that finding justice, gaining this justice, hasn't actually fixed the pain that's inside. That's why the psalmist's decision to turn to God with his pain is actually the correct first step of lament. It is turning to the one who can actually fix it, who can actually fix what's wrong. Turning away doesn't work. Turning to it doesn't work. But turning to him with our pain actually begins the lament process. Second is to complain to God. Complain to God. These these two questions that he asks in verse 1, they're very bold, if not misguided, questions to God. Right, the implication there being that God has somehow abandoned his people at the very worst moment, in their moment of greatest need, that he is not near to him, but he is far away. He has hidden himself from their view. Right, this is a heart that's trying to understand the situation that it finds itself in. Right, you can almost hear the questions that aren't being asked out loud. Right, how, could you, how could you allow this wickedness to prosper if you are a just God? Don't you see what's happening, God? Why don't you act? Why are you not doing anything? How could you allow this? And the writer continues to detail the wickedness that he is witnessing in verses 8 to 11. He, being the wicked, sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And you can sense the psalmist's outrage, his helplessness as he's watching this scene unfold. God, look at how the wicked afflict the poor and the weak. Look at how the wicked crush the helpless. Look at how he disrespects you, God, acting as if you don't see these things There's disgust, there's rage, there's anger here. And you can see how heavily it weighs on his shoulders. It's a feeling of despair and defeat that he's dealing with. And I think we are well familiar with this feeling. When we come across situations that are so great that we cannot do anything, whether we get a cancer diagnosis, whether we lose a loved one, 
whether our child turns away from the faith, whether we're dealing with anxiety, depression, injustice. It's this crushing, sinking feeling that we've fallen into a pit that we can't climb out of. The darkness itself seems to, to gain a physical weight that sits on our shoulders that we can't escape from. And maybe in those moments, we might be tempted to think like this evil person and think, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He does not know what I'm going through. He cannot see me. I look back at some of the darkest nights of my soul, for my soul, and they all have the same thing in common. They all share the same thread. There's this inward spiraling that is largely devoid of God. In the moments I have faced the most despair in my own life are moments where I find myself complaining to myself how bad things are. And it just grows and grows. And I I grow in my despair because in my heart, I truly believe that God cannot see what I am going through. It's not an intentional thing. And yet, functionally, that's how I was living, as if God truly was blind to my pain. And so naturally, I despaired because I was dying. I was stuck and God didn't see me. You see, despair is the child of godlessness. Despair comes when we have pushed God aside, when we have lost sight of who God is. Despair grows when we don't recognize my God knows and he sees. It's in this moment that we may be tempted to believe this foolish lie that we need to learn how to complain to God. Learn to complain to God because it awakens us to the reality of God. It rejects this lie that my God is not present to help or able to help. You see, complaining to God might actually be difficult for many of us to do. Two possible issues that I I think we may deal with. First off, we are too results-driven. We are too solutions-based, right? Why waste time complaining when I can just find the biblical answers? Some of us might already have passages in our mind. We have the answers ready, especially as you read Psalm 10 and you saw these complaints that this psalmist was writing. You were thinking, oh, you of little faith, did you know of these passages? Right? Naturally, we go there. I know the answers. I'm ready to prove that God is always present, that God disciplines those whom he loves. He never leaves us. In fact, He sees everything, and these are all good things, things that we need to know, things that are important, and yet, if that prevents you from actually complaining to God, I think there's a problem. I remember going to a funeral one time, a terrible situation, uh, where the young man whose funeral it was had taken his own life. Awful, awful situation. And yet, there was something very off, for lack of better terms, uh, with this funeral. Uh, The father, who's a Christian, came up and preached a sermon. A lot of biblical truth, a lot of good advice, good things. And yet he seemed to refuse to mourn the reality that was in front of him. The casket was right next to him. And yet he would not shed a tear. He refused to. And I don't share that to to shame him, but I think there's something distinctly wrong with that picture. That's an awful situation. It's okay to mourn 
to hurt because the situation is so awful. Right? Sometimes I think we can be so focused on having the right answers, the right biblical answers to our problems that we actually forget to go to the one who actually is the answer to our problems. I don't like the situation, so I'm going to fix it. I'm going to look for the right answers. I, I have the Bible, and that's good. That's good. The answers, the truth that we need is in here, but it's not finding the answers that will save us. It's finding him. Because sometimes we turn, we have this tendency to turn the Bible into a self-help book. Right? We use the answers to save ourselves. I have the right answers, and therefore I will be okay. I can fix myself. And we turn Christianity into a plug the right answers into the, the right uh, equation to find the favorable solutions kind of, kind of thing. That's not faith. That's religion. That's how Pharisees operate. It's okay to be in a bad situation and say to God, I don't like this. This hurts. This is awful. It's part of being human and living in a sin-cursed world and, and to feel the pain that actually leads us back to God. And maybe this is something we need to learn from the psalmist. There is a place for turning to God with our complaints. It's important. See, God has made us to feel. God has made us to have emotions, to express ourselves, because he did not make us to be robots. Suffering is ugly. Jesus himself wept. And we as humans are often faced with these awful situations where we are invited to complain to him, to say, God, this is awful. Second, second point that, that may keep us from, from complaining to God, complaining is sin. Actually, it's not, not, at least not this complaining here, but we thought it, didn't we? When we heard complaining to God, our natural inclination is, well, sin, obviously, you can't complain. See, this kind of complaining is a complaint that asks God to act. It's not born out of questioning God's character, but rather asking God to be our deliverance. And this, this, this is a good kind of complaining if there's such a thing, right? But we may naturally believe that all kind of complaining is sinful, that it is so ingrained in us. So this past week, uh, taking care of some kids, babysitting them, and, and I had to tell one of the kids, please stop complaining about losing in Pokemon, and then I played against her, and I started losing, and I started complaining, and then she scolded me. Very humbling, very ironic. You see, our God actually welcomes our honest thoughts. He welcomes our complaints. It's not a call to sinful venting of anger or, or accusations that malign God's character, but rather a call to bring our genuine thoughts and concerns before God. And it's like the psalmist to say, God, look at this great evil happening to your people. Do something. Where are you? This is awful. Can you not see it? Do you realize that this complaining, this protesting of sin is a healthy and good part of lament? Because in one sense, it actually aligns our hearts with a holy God. To say to God and to say with God, I hate sin. I hate what it's doing to your people. I hate what it's doing to me. God, act. Don't allow this to continue. Destroy this evil. This actually leads us to ask God for help. This is our third point, ask of God. All right, at this point, the psalmist has finished his complaints, and now he's asking God for help in verse 12. Arise, O Lord. 
Oh God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. In other words, start acting now. Do something. Respond, God. Rescue your people. And then he counters the lies of the wicked in verse 13 to 14. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. And it's interesting to note here, on one hand, he's recounting all the evil deeds of these wicked people. Right? And he's, he's saying, look, look, these people think that you do not see this evil. And yet on the, the very next sentence, he answers himself. And he says, wait, actually you do. You see all things. You demand justice. You will enact justice. And therefore, the weak can come to you. The helpless can come to you. And the psalmist begins to find comfort. He begins to find peace because he's reminded that, in fact, nothing is hidden from God, that God sees all things and will act. He is not a God who will let sin go unpunished. And so, then he asks God from verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Now, it might sound kind of brutal there. You're thinking, wow, praying for someone's arm to break. Well, in biblical terms, he's asking, break the power of the wicked. Stop him. And in some situations, maybe that does call for a physical breaking. We don't know. But essentially, in essence, what God is being asked of by this psalmist is stop this evil. And so this is a turning point in lament, one that actually brings us out of the darkness and into the light. It starts with asking God for help because no longer is the focus on is no longer the focus is 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 on what is wrong, but rather it's turning into what can be made right, what can be fixed. And this is not just positive thinking or imagining a better future, but rather this is coming to the one who is able to do all things, the one who is mighty enough to change the situation. It is to come to him and ask for deliverance. And this is actually what begins to help us overcome. All right, there are two roads that we naturally tend to take when we're suffering. One is denial and one is despair. Denial is to simply reject what is reality in front of our eyes and say, I don't see it. It doesn't exist. It's not that bad. Despair comes from from when the situation is so awful we can't see a way out. Right, the depression is so thick that that you can't find your way out. Uh, It's moments of hopelessness. Facing death, destruction, leading us to spiral and feel more defeated. But what we do when we ask God for help is actually be led to hope and reality. The antithesis of denial and despair. Because we see honestly what reality is before us. We see the situation. It doesn't try to paint a false picture. It puts us right where it is. And yet it points us upward to the one who is able to fix us and to fix all things. Right? Lament naturally brings us to God in desperation and dependency to ask him for help. And that is a good thing. It reminds me of my relationship with my father. I'm probably sure I mentioned him before. Uh, he is probably the most able handyman I know. If there's anything that's broken, anything that's wrong, I can go to him and he has all the answers. 
Uh, it's always been like that um, since, well, since I was born. He's always been very able, uh, and he always has all the answers. Uh, he was Google before Google was Google. Uh, and when we were riding in cars and he would drive us to some random place that he had never been, he had this internal GPS, and he's like, I feel it's this way. And we're like, what? You didn't look at a map. And he's like, don't worry. I feel it. I'm like, oh, okay. And nine out of ten times he was right. I don't know. I don't know how it works, right? And yet when I grew up, I moved out of the house. Uh, I I told myself, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to be capable. Uh, I'm going to do everything by myself for as long as I can. And and to be honest, I don't know if he's in here right now, but that's my pride. Telling myself, I can do it without him. I'm capable. I'm able. I'm independent. Until something happens, and I find myself completely clueless as to how to fix it. Car breaks down. Hey, Dad. Sink breaks down. Hey, Dad. Refrigerator has problems. Hey, Dad. I need to cook something. Hey, Dad. It just goes on and on and on. He's the first one I call. And for some reason, within two rings, he answers. And within five minutes, he's at my door. uh, Or money back guarantee. It's like, I don't understand how he does this. But he does it over and over and over. And I think I've come to realize something. I think my dad likes it when I ask him for help. I think he likes it when I call for help. And part of it, I think he's just a natural provider. That's who he is, right? Every time he goes to Costco, he comes back with like 13 gallons of of orange juice and like six sacks of potatoes and, oh, Charmin's on sale. Here, take some, right? That's naturally who he is. And yet, I think it's more than just being a provider. I think he finds particular joy in answering my request as his child for help. He's always willing to drop everything that he's doing as a retired person to come and help me immediately. No hesitation. I think it's part of his love for me as his child. I think our Heavenly Father also invites us to ask him of help, to come to him with our desperation, our pleads, our pleas, and and our, our requests. He enjoys it. Right, Matthew 7, 7 says this, this is Jesus speaking, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. That is as great of an invitation as I've ever heard. It's God himself saying, come to me with your questions, your requests, your ask, and I will give freely to you. Matthew 7, verse 11, same passage. He says, if you then who are evil, speaking to humans, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is a father who loves to get requests from his children, who delights when he gets rung up at two in the morning from a child who says, Dad, my heart hurts. I just lost my mom. God, my child is walking away from the faith. God, my heart cannot deal with the injustice that I'm facing. God, my heart itself seems to be squeezed dry. I have nothing left to give. And it's the Father who says, let me know what you need. I'll be there for you. I'm already there for you. I'm happy to answer you. I'm not annoyed by your asking. Actually, I love to answer. I love to hear from you, and I love to give you what your heart needs. I love to provide for you. And this is difficult for us to take because it humbles us. 
Like me and my father, I don't like to be seen as incapable, and so I try not to ask. Friends, is that keeping you? Is your pride keeping you from coming to your God? Keeping you from asking him for help? For us and God, this is exactly what needs to happen. Lament corrects our pride by putting us in a place of dependency and desperation. And it's the best place to be because it teaches us to trust him. It's our final point, trust in God. See, ultimately, lament leads us to trust our Father. Look at verse 17 and 18. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. See, as the psalmist is asking God for help, he is naturally being reminded of who God is. He's naturally being pointed to God's character. God, you you will strengthen the heart of the afflicted. You will incline your ear to the afflicted. You will do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. This is who you are. And therefore, the psalmist knows if that's the case, if that's who my God is, then the man of the earth, the wicked, may strike terror no more. He will put an end to these things. This is the God I know. Right? It's important to see here the change in the demeanor of the psalmist. Right, going from despair and defeat to now certainty in who God is. I mean, note how it's written. You will. You will. It's not you might, you may. It is you will. This is who you are. This is the ultimate goal of lament, to grow in trust of God by resting in his character. Because it will not change. See, our goal in lament is not to make God change the situation. And that's important to note. The goal, yes, the goal is something different. Yes, we may long for change. We may long for an answer to our questions, but external change, situational change, circumstantial change is not the goal, but rather it is the internal change. That is the true fruit of lament. Not external, but internal. Because lament teaches us to lean on him to trust on him. It's our hearts learning to come before God and say, can you save me from this? Can you save me, my God? You see, the psalmist had to lean on what he knew to be true of God. And this is a writer of the Old Testament who had Israel's history to look back on and say, can I trust him from what I've seen? And yes, the psalmist is led back there. Yes, I can. Yes, I can trust him. But here's the thing. We as New Testament believers have an even greater promise, an even greater evidence to rely on and lean on. It's right there. As we look at that cross and we see that it is still empty, that the tomb is still empty, that we recognize, as long as my God shall live, as long as my God remains enthroned, I can trust him. That as long as he is God, then I can trust him. That it doesn't matter what, what situation I may find myself in, what circumstances may befall me, how low I may go, that does not change the fact that I have the love of Christ. That's why Romans 8 is so powerful. Nothing can take it from me. 
Nothing can take away the love of Christ. And that's where Christian lament brings us. It naturally brings us to the foot of the cross. And it says, can you trust him with what you're dealing with? And that cross is where his answer, God's answer hung for us, proclaiming for eternity, yes, you can, because he's already done it for our, for our, our salvation. He's already died for us. He's already lived for us. He's already risen for us. My friends, bring your hurts to him. Bring your hurts to him. You can trust him. Let me pray for us. Father, would you answer us here? To my friends who are hurting, to my friends who are longing to hear from you, to all who are thirsty and weary in this desert that they find themselves in. God, would we be able to come to you and find that we are welcomed before you, that we are welcomed into your presence. God, we ask for help. You know the situations of our brothers and sisters here. You know what they're enduring. God, would you answer them? Would you teach them that they can come to you honestly with their pains and their sufferings and know that Father, you have nothing but love for them. God, would you shower your grace upon them when they feel defeated? Would you pour out more grace and more mercy and more love? Would they be overwhelmed and find that their pain suddenly is lessening? That their fears and their desperation and their frustrations have no power over them, but God, with the gospel, with the gospel of Jesus, would it reign supreme? Would it show us, God, that we can come before you and ask you of all things, and you will give us the very best? Maybe not what we want right now, but God, what we truly need in your son, Jesus. God, we love you, and we thank you for loving us first. Praise in your son's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.